All right, guys, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. This is episode four. We're going to be talking with two authors on a paper um, that I know I'm a very big fan of. Uh, we're going to have Peter Stilwell and Catherine Harmon are on the podcast with us today. How's it going, guys? Great. Thanks for inviting us. Hi there. I'm really pleased to be here. Absolutely. It's, it's awesome to have you guys on. I know we've been planning this for, for a little bit of time now, and uh, we just appreciate you guys taking the time to speak with us. I'm also joined by my usual co-host, uh, Dr. Derek Miles, who's a physical therapist out at Stanford Children's Hospital. How's it going, Derek? Good morning, Mike. Also have Dr. Michael Amato, a physical therapist at Boston PT and Wellness. How's it going, Amato? Very good on this end. Thank you. Sweet. So um, what we're going to do with this is we're going to have uh, Derek moderate for us, and then he's going to kind of field questions and kind of guide this process through it. And then uh, we'll all just hopefully have a good discussion about this paper. Um, and let me give you guys the official title. Peter, do you want to name it off for us? Oh, yeah. It's been, been a while since I've looked at it. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I believe it was uh, uh, an inactive approach to pain beyond the biopsychosocial model. Is that right, Catherine? You got it. Perfect. So um, just kind of background on this, a lot of us have uh, previously talked about very publicly about the need to move away from a biomedical model and kind of shift the paradigm towards a biopsychosocial model, which our audience is most likely aware, uh, based off of previous podcasts, is this has been going on since the 70s with George Engel. And now uh, with uh, Peter and Catherine's paper, I really liked it because it seems to build off of the positives of the biopsychosocial model, which is kind of the point of developing a model is as we learn new information and gain new knowledge on a topic, we kind of develop new framework and a way of looking at things. So we're going to dive into that today. And I'll, at this point, I'll turn it over to Derek. So, yeah, thank you guys for joining us today. And we'll start off just for the audience. If Peter and Catherine, if you guys wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about your background as far as your academic background and current research endeavors. Catherine, do you want to go first? So good morning. My name is Catherine Harmon. I'm a physiotherapist. Um, I have a master's degree in science in anatomy and a PhD in psychology, both degrees uh, I studied in neuroscience as well. I did a specialization in neuroscience. So I've been interested in pain and uh, physical therapy for a very long time. I've been over 30 years as a prof in two Canadian schools of physiotherapy. Um, and my research has kind of spanned a lot of areas um, but the most interesting really cycled right back to the beginning again of my, my real basic clinical interest, and that is folks that have uh, persistent pain and, you know, uh, th that pain that uh, really wrecks their life. And what are we doing as physiotherapists? And since I started working with Peter, my view expanded to chiropractic very happily. Um, and together we've been looking at therapeutic alliance and behavior change, and now really focusing on language and the meaning making that happens between the healthcare provider and the person with pain. And Peter, go ahead. Yeah, um, so my name is Peter Stilwell. Uh, I started out doing a Bachelor of Kinesiology at the University of Calgary, uh, then went 
uh, to Toronto to CMCC and did a doctor chiropractic there. And then continued my way east, uh, ended up at Dalhousie University and did a master's of science with uh, Dr. Catherine Harmon, who, who was just speaking there. And uh, I guess when I, my first week in clinical practice was my first week starting as a master's student. So I did the two simultaneously. And as I wrapped up the master's, uh, decided I, I didn't suffer enough. So continued on with a PhD, uh, once again, uh, continuing working with, with Catherine, as well as uh, Dr. Brenda Sabo in the School of Nursing. Uh, so my master's work, mostly as uh, Catherine already alluded to, r- really looking at communication between healthcare practitioners and patients with, with low back pain. Uh, I had a particular interest at the time in exercise adherence. Uh, and w- with that, interested in behavior change, that therapeutic connection between clinicians and patients. And that's been a kind of recurring theme uh, now throughout the PhD. Um, I'm in the last, my fourth and kind of final year of the PhD program. And uh, yeah, just looking at postdoc opportunities now. Uh, I practiced clinically for for years, like up right up until uh, the beginning of the PhD. And recently I switched my license to a, a non-practicing and I just do full-time research on a variety of health projects now. Excellent. One of the papers I think originally got us into you guys and uh, reading your work was the I didn't pay her to fix my or to teach me to fix my back article from 2017. And it definitely with what you guys are talking about uh, in regards to patient language, it's something that we're certainly on board with. You know, I think that paradigm definitely needs some more discussion. And in your current paper, or the one we're talking about today, you, you do discuss some problems with the biopsychosocial model. And would you guys care to expand on some of those and how you see that we could improve upon that model? Catherine, do you want me to go or do you want to take a stab at it first? Peter, I'm going to let you take the lead in, in all of it, unless there's a uh, question directed right to me. Um, but if you if you want, if you are in a place where you just would like me to jump in, I'll happy to. Okay, you just take the lead. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, th- for some context, this is typically how our relationship is. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> um, we, we always joke we're we're like two two introverts, and then when people bring us together and ask us to do things, we kind of joke behind the scenes and say, <laughs> "Okay, who, who's gonna who's gonna talk first? Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll I'll touch on it. So in the paper, we talk about a couple different issues with the biopsychosocial model. So um, I guess a bit of background. This paper stemmed out of a comprehensive exam question that I had, and so uh, the initial draft of this paper came out of uh, a couple weeks of, of writing, and then it went through kind of multiple revisions since then. Uh, and, and Catherine's helped me help me shape it and, and make it flow quite nicely. And obviously, the editors at the the journal as well, at, uh, phenomenology and the cognitive sciences. But uh, I did a lot of reading, and I was like, Engel did such such wonderful work, and really set such a great foundation for shifting from uh, a, a really biomedical, linear type of structural thinking to a more kind of a psychosocially based uh, model, while still incorporating biology. And 
I, essentially what I was tasked with was to create an argument for a new model of pain and to consider uh, something like an activism. And, and so uh, I went in like, oh, this is going to be really difficult. The biopsychosocial model is so hot right now. Like, what are the, like, I have some issues with it, but like, how can I make like a really good argument on this? And so really started to think deeply upon it, reflect on clinical practice and uh, look into some of the history and and realize like it really does lack a strong theoretical foundation. So Engel based it on general systems theory, but but really it, it doesn't explicitly incorporate the phenomenology or that first person experience uh, of subjective conditions like, like pain. Um, so that was one kind of a starting point. And then really started to look at the practical application as well. And uh, what I always saw in clinical practice was people either dichotomized the model or kind of trichotomized it. So either split it into biological or psychosocial or split it up into three different components. So bio, psycho, and, and social. And in clinical practice, like people tend, like in Cairo and physio and medicine, tend to gravitate towards the biological. And that was part of the, the, the argument that we made was, a lot of people try to be very holistic with this biopsychosocial framework, um, but they end up being actually quite reductionist and say things like, oh, pain is ultimately an output of the brain or, or pain is in the brain, um, which, is, which is obviously problematic, which we lay out in the paper. There's also the other camp where people are almost dualist in a sense. So going back to that, like a version of Descartes, right? And people are, if they can't find a physical or a, biological explanation for pain, they say, oh, well, it must be psychological and attribute it to some sort of immaterial mind. And unfortunately, that goes alongside of almost that, that stigma with patients where the message can be relayed that it's all in your head and, and that's perceived to be less real or less legitimate type of pain. And I think it's good that you guys emphasize the language side of it, because especially I think one of the big takeaways from the paper is that the perception of what's going on really matters and we don't want to stigmatize the patient. And then so the problems with categorizing this, um, you know, what do you see as the, the major issues with the typical Venn diagram of the biopsychosocial approach? Yeah, I, I guess what we argue in the paper is it's a arbitrary or artificial delineation, right? Like it's as much as Engel meant for it to be uh, dynamic and for these things to be interacting together. Um, when we look at it clinically, that's that's not typically the way people see it, and I think that comes down to our training. Like we want to make it like chop it into neat packages. We, we, we cite a, a paper in our a paper uh, discussing that, right? And uh, we want to like s separate these things and, and take a very structured approach to assessment. And I think people just feel more comfortable with the bio or mechanical aspects rather than sitting down and uh, kind of deeply reflecting on the cultural and psychosocial underpinnings of, of perception uh, and pain, right? Yeah, and it seems like the the psychosocial often just gets reduced down to the psycho as well, and that we talk about fear and we forget that that is an interactive process. And so, why do you think the social component seems to be so hard for us to discuss? And I fully concede here; I've created my own bucket. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I guess I, I, like my perspective is it comes down to training and I know there's been studies, a few done in the context of physiotherapy where pe- people just don't feel prepared to address psychosocial factors and it hasn't been an emphasis in their, in their clinical training. And we did a, a chiropractic study not too long ago, like small qualitative study and, and found the same thing uh, that, that they found in the context of physiotherapy. People just want to focus in on anatomy, right? They want to focus in on biomechanics. They feel more comfortable that way. And often patients, like it's not just in healthcare, like uh, our broader culture, like that's that expectation that uh, the back hurts because of solely mechanical reasons. We lifted poorly or we have poor posture and, uh, people come in with an expectation for a mechanical diagnosis, not a conversation about culture and beliefs. And I I like how you, I listened to your last podcast and I I like how you tapped into beliefs and the cultural underpinnings of pain. And like, I was quite interested to listen to that. And I agreed with, with everything you said. Maybe I'll jump in here. Uh, I think the other thing that, well, at least what I've observed all these uh, years working with physiotherapy students in particular, um, we are attracting people who uh, want to help people, absolutely. I think we all would agree that that's the right thing to do. And we, we are exposed to patients who have very specific pain usually. And so let's go right to it and fix it is kind of the kind of the method, right? Um, but what I've been trying to get students to think about, um, you know, about universal precautions, that um, approach to uh, working with people knowing that or not knowing whether they have an infectious disease or not, we interact with them all in the same way. We wash our hands, we take precautions, right? So I try to get students to think about uh, approaching patients in pain as though they could potentially develop chronic pain. And so many times, you know, we have patients go through our hands that have a, you know, acute issue, kind of better and off they go. Um, but And that's where it starts, right? Every person with chronic pain has likely gone through a whole bunch of healthcare providers' hands before it really becomes a problem that they, it wrecks their lives. So, but if we encounter the folks with a simple, maybe straightforward, physical kind of presentation with a much broader view of the context, the meaning of this pain to them, the, the implications for the future, then we pay attention to the language we're using. We ask them questions that may be a little bit less direct, and we help, I believe, we're going to set them up to uh, perhaps not go down the path where the pain is so severe and complex that it wrecks their lives, but they, we help them develop the capacity to encounter this strange phenomenon uh, with a bit more, um, with broader coping stra- strategies and, and, and approaches as well. So we, you mentioned, you know, the language, and that's what's really become quite interesting to me. How do we as healthcare providers ask the question, what metaphors do we use? What, how do we react when patients tell us about their pain, even if it's very simple? Because I think it really sets people up to long-lasting 
um, impacts. So you, you talk about, you mentioned fear. Uh, I often also think about fear as something that's um, really quick to learn, but really hard to extinguish. It's hard to get past a fear. I had a conversation just yesterday with a friend who told me about an encounter she had was with a healthcare provider and she can't, she's still working at rewriting the script. You know, the script was, well, if you keep exercising, you're going to you're going to damage your hip and you're not going to be able to walk anymore, right? And and she said it's it's hard to forget that. Yeah, I think um I think it's interesting you mentioned metaphors in that discussion. There's one of my favorite papers is by uh, Nielsen from 2016 that talks about pain as a metaphor. And it, it does appear at this point, especially with the qualitative studies we're seeing, that our language has a major impact on people. And I think, like, my opinion would be we have a fundamental misunderstanding at the social level of, like, what is pain and how best to handle it. But then we're confined to our linguistic ability to communicate about the topic. Um, I'm kind of curious what you guys' thoughts are on that. And then how could we, and sorry if I'm kind of hijacking this, Derek. Um, no worries. I've got to, I'm kind of curious, like, how do you guys go about that communicative process where we try to watch our language? Yeah, I, I guess I can jump in here. So interesting that you, you bring that up. Uh, we're doing a study right now looking at how physiotherapists and chiropractors explain pain to their patients with low back pain. So actually doing observations in clinics, recording their uh, appointments with, with patients and then splitting them up after and, and talking to the clinicians and asking, okay, well, why do you explain pain that way? You used all these different types of metaphors and analogies. What, what was your intention? Were you trying to shape a person's expectations or, or shape their beliefs about pain? And then we, we talk to the patients as well and say, what do you think of this explanation? What meaning did you actually assign to this? How is that impacting your daily living, your, your life? And, uh, what we're finding is it depends. Like it depends on so many factors, right? You can take one person and say you have the back of an 80-year-old um, and, and you should never exercise again Like, or you're going to make it worse, similar to kind of what, what Catherine was just men mentioning. And they can just brush it off and not think think twice about it and just go on and go, ah, that person doesn't know what they're talking about and uh, keep doing what they've been doing. Where you take another person that's uh, a, a bit different, they can uh, – perceive their back to be then fragile, avoid kind of evidence-based treatments like, like exercise and, and movement. Um, so, so we really have to consider, I, I think, the person in front of us and the meaning they assign to the explanation. And uh, that said, I think some explanations are, are worse than others. Like I don't, Things like when I, when I do some teaching, I say, I kind of joke and I say, if you really hate someone, tell them they have bone-on-bone arthritis because people don't tend to forget that one um i'm sure you've seen yeah. you guys probably have seen it many times clinically right oh yeah yeah i i think the hardest part is like getting when you get that patient with all that all that dialogue and all that narrative and then they have such set beliefs and kind of what going back to what Catherine was saying like when you have that person who's more acute or younger, at least I, I have more experience these days now with treating like high school patients, uh, high school athletes is like, you can kind of set the stage for the future. But when you get that client who's 30, 40, 50 years old, and they've been told by so many clinicians or providers 
that's a part of their like schema now. And so it's a really hard thing to change. Well, I think Derek's in a, and, and I don't want to speak for you, Derek, uh, feel free to address this. I think you're in a unique position just having seen you transition to pediatrics, which comes with its own set of beliefs as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this, what we're essentially getting into is starting to explore some of our patients' prior beliefs. And, you know, working in peds, I'm afforded a population that doesn't individualistically have priors. But if you want to talk about the social component, you do have to explore all that with parents. Um, And to kind of bring it back to where we are, uh, I think it's interesting that we keep coming back to language as the construct that we're really working through because that inherently implies some type of social interaction. You can talk to yourself all day long, but it really is that discussion with the other clinician or with your family members that really allows some of these properties to come out. So with that said, we'll kind of get into the next point of this, you know, um, Catherine, Peter, you guys talk about pain as an emergent process. Can you discuss how that really differs from the Cartesian picture that we see in every pain lecture ever of the guy with the foot in the fire and the wire running up his back? (laughs) Yeah, and I've definitely used that image many times. Um, Yeah, essentially what, what we're getting to with emergence is that the whole is more than just the sum of the parts. Um, So, we, we talk about pain, how a lot of people do investigations just trying to find the solution or the explanation at the level of the disc or at the level of the facet joint or, or certain types of uh, motor type of patterns. And you have other groups that are looking at trying to find the essence of pain in the networks in the brain and different types of neural kind of signatures. Uh, and so... <sighs> We say you got to take a a step back and look at the broader picture. And to really tap into that, we adapt a metaphor from Evan Thompson talking about a a bird and flight. I I really like this metaphor or analogy when I first ran into it. And he talks about how you're not going to find flight by investigating just a bird's wings. So by looking into the feathers, by, by doing some sort of scientific analysis, by just looking into the wings... He says, "No, you got to take a, a broader picture. You got to you got to take a step back and look at how the wings are attached to a bird and how there's a relationship with the atmosphere and how together flight unfolds from these dynamic interactions. So you'd never find just uh, the ex- explanation of flight by just looking into the wings. And we say the same thing goes for for pain. So although it's very important to investigate these things." at the level of just the spine or, or look at the networks in the brain, the unit of analysis is, is larger if we want to really understand pain as a whole. So taking a step back and looking at the relationship among the parts uh, to create uh, how uh, essentially how pain unfolds or emerges. Catherine, do you want to add on to that? Like, I'm kind of ra- rambling here. Well, I know you you were using the example from our paper, which is, I think, quite helpful. So if people wanted to um, go back and read the paper and see it again, they might catch it, right? Um, I I guess the other thing I wanted to add, maybe it's this place in our conversation. Uh, Peter started with uh, talking about how this paper sort of came out of uh, work he was doing for his comprehensive exam. Um, the target of our paper was 
is uh, sort of phenomenologists and psychologists and cognitive neuroscientists and so on. Um, and yet, uh, we have found that there's a great deal of interest clinically, uh, which we're excited about. And uh, I guess what we want to be sure is that people understand that um, we're not putting a new, a brand new theory together to replace something like the Descartes uh, picture, um, but to add on, and I think um, Derek might have mentioned that earlier, that it's a positive, it, you know, we're adding to other things. And so that's one point. And then the second point is, it's not about replacing what physiotherapists and chiropractors do already. The physical aspect of our practice is is good. It's not a, we're not saying it's not good. What we what we want people to do is consider a little bit more broadly how many elements of people's lives are connected to their pain experience, and we as practitioners can have quite a, a strong influence on how people manage with it right? Physically, we can have a strong influence on it. And psychologically, we can have a strong influence on it. So we're talking about language and how language is used. That's psychology, right? And a lot of physiotherapists don't think of themselves as psychologists. We aren't. But we use psychology in our practice. And, and if we can intentionally understand a little bit broader definition of the way pain experience evolves and interacts with people, interact with the world, then we can intentionally bring into our practice some psychological techniques which will just make our practice more effective. And I think you have a spectacular point there in that like a lot of our training clinically comes in what would be considered, or I think what most of us would consider hard sciences of looking for pathology. And the more we start talking about language, the closer it starts getting to a philosophical conversation and which has a lot of scientific backing to it, but being able to make that distinction of having the hard conversation with the patient and realizing that one of the larger contributors to our treatment is the meaning effect we assign to it, I think really is an integral part to getting our patients the best care we can provide. Yeah. And I think what's attractive of this kind of model is like, like Catherine said, we're not like replacing the details of what we do like on a day to day and our like background training. But for me, it kind of speaks to like, what is our starting point? And uh, I think that's what's attractive to me about phenomenology is that if the starting point is that dialogue between you and the patient and them sharing their experience, then I think like the like clinical practice should like branch from that and that doesn't mean like you stop doing what you were trained to do and from from like a physical therapy or chiropractor standpoint but that the starting point is their subjective experience and then it should wrap back to what that subjective experience is and that's not just like something you're trying to get through to try to find the hidden objective but like that their subjective is their real experience of why they're there nicely said 100%. And then just, you know, helping them address their experience and the meaning of it. And I think one of the big takeaways I took from you guys' paper was considering the environment and context in which the person exists that's experiencing those symptoms and being sure that we address that as well. Thank you for listening so far. 
we're going to take a brief break for some more information on one of our products. The Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Seminars are officially launching with myself, Dr. Michael Ray, and Dr. Derek Miles. This fall in Boston, Massachusetts, we'll be there on November the 1st and the 2nd for a two-day seminar. This seminar is dedicated to helping attendees understand and implement scientific principles into clinical practice in order to provide evidence-based care to their patients dealing with pain and the rehabilitative process. This seminar is appropriate for clinicians, coaches, and trainers who wish to increase their knowledge base about pain, rehab, and case-specific exercise prescriptions. Topics will include evidence-based practice, pain education, hip pain, shoulder pain, low back pain, youth resistance training, and ACL rehab. Each body region-specific lecture will be followed by a breakout session in which attendees will learn to practically apply the principles that they are learning for specifically exercise prescription. These breakout sessions will include learning how to perform particular exercises such as the squat, the deadlift, the bench press, the overhead press, and other case-specific exercises that are relevant. After completion of this two-day seminar, attendees will have a broad understanding of the current best scientific evidence regarding the topics and how to apply such knowledge to clinical practice. Finally, every seminar will include a question and answer session where myself and Dr. Derek Miles will spend time answering all of your questions. Check out for more information on our website at barbellmedicine.com. And now back to our podcast on the inactive approach to pain with Peter Stilwell and Catherine Harmon. So do you guys think it kind of cuts both ways in that we've seen a little bit of a shift from it's your disc or it's a facet to the emergence of nonspecific low back pain. And you guys think that presents a, a different set of problems when trying to communicate with patients, their prognosis and diagnosis. Yeah. There's a lot of heated debate around the term nonspecific low back pain. Right. And, uh, when I was listening to your, the low back podcast you did, uh, I was listening to it last night and, I think you touched on it nicely. Like I've never, I don't think I've ever told somebody that they've had non-specific low back pain in that way. Like I think it's good as a, a construct in, in research essentially to identify like, Hey, we're just talking about back pain where there's no serious underlying pathology, like a fracture or tumor or, or infection. Uh, I think when we talk to patients, there, there's different ways that we can go about it, but <sighs> I guess don't get me wrong. Like I went through the the phases, right? Like when I got out of school, like I was telling people they had a L3, L4 facet irritation on the right side and very kind of reductionist mechanical perspective. And as I learned more, I really shifted my, my approach and, and got to the point where I was like telling patients, I'm like, Hey, like back pain always has many factors and and we're going to focus in on the ones that are modifiable um, and using different types of analogies to fit with the patient in front of me, right? So I like the different analogies, things like, uh, I think it was Mosley and Butler talk about like the bathtub analogy, how all these things start going into the bathtub, right? And once it overflows, that's when you experience pain, but there's always all these different things uh, being added and interacting in, in, in that bathtub. And they talk about I think they say adding the bilby. I don't know. It's it, maybe some Australian animal or something. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, don't blame the, the bilby for overflowing the bathtub. Um, like as in like, there's already all these multiple factors interacting together and the, the little bilby gets added, whatever that, that thing is, and it overflows and we blame that. So um, 
I think the same thing goes for back pain, right? So you, people blame the, the thing that happened right before uh, they start experiencing the pain. So something that they lifted or, or uh, some sort of posture, but when you start to navigate it and talk about all the, these different factors, maybe they had poor sleep for the past couple of weeks, they're stressed and all these things interact together in, 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 in dynamic ways, right. To, to contribute to pain. Uh, Catherine, do you have anything to add with the terminology kind of non-specific low back pain? Yeah. Well, one of the things that came to mind while you were talking was, um, in the study that we're doing analysis of right now, um, patients, also have a, a you know important element in this conversation and we and we heard from them and I know you know this too that they really want a diagnosis you know they want some kind of label they want an explanation I, I think you in one of the interviews a, pa a participant was asked you know if you could if you could find out more about you know what it is that's wrong with you what would you want I'd like to see it, she says. I want to see the the pathology in my back, right? And and so we have to deal with that as a clinician, right? We have that force, that pressure to come up with some kind of diagnosis. So it's it's not simply that you know. And and in fact, the other that was the other thing. One of the healthcare providers said, "Well, I'll just tell them I you know that they have an L four five slip, even though that's not really true." Uh, because they, you know, because they are responding to this call from the patient, so we have to navigate that somehow. And again, that's the language thing. It's like, how do we support their need for a solution or an explanation? I mean, um, while not actually um, creating more problems, right? By them thinking, okay, it's a physical thing; it can be fixed, right? Catherine, do you think that has a lot to do with validation of the patient and their experience, like wanting that label applied to them? I, I like that thought because um, uh, uh, I'm not sure uh, what all the patient's experiences are, but certainly I've heard a lot that uh, this is the first time that X, Y, Z, and usually it's this is the first time somebody actually has listened to my story, right? So uh, I, I think validation of the experience of pain is it takes uh, will take a healthcare provider a long way towards having a strong therapeutic alliance and and you know making a, a better impact on the on the condition. Yeah, and I feel like that also gets to like what they're there for. Like I, I find the powerful question like in the beginning of most of my consults is, you know, what are you hoping to get out of today and, you know, the, the following subsequent weeks and treatments? Because for somebody that answer that diagnosis might be important, but for somebody else, they may have a different like question or need that's more important to them. And I'm sure that that's part of why you guys do this qualitative research is, you're going to get different responses and different experiences from different patients. Huge. Yeah. Uh, like, and sometimes they're nicely aligned, like these dyads that we look at, like the, the clinician patient dyads and, and other times they're, they're not really on the, the, the same page. So really interesting to explore that. And uh, Mike, I think you hit on a really good point about yeah. Navigating, navigating expectations right off the bat. Right. And that was something I learned like over the years, like it just, establish that right off the bat and have that ongoing communication like what what are they actually looking for what are their specific their, their specific goals instead of 
the clinician just trying to impose their own kind of goals or what they think is important on the patient, right? Yeah, because I think in school, like, you, we assume that, oh, we need to, like, diagnose, treat, discharge. And that is, like, you know, that is, that's, like, kind of how we're taught. Mm-hmm. And that may, it may just not fit everyone's situation. Well, I think it's interesting you even chose that vernacular motto because, you know, one of the next things I wanted to ask is the paper discussed the medicalization of low back pain. And I think our base training often is set upon there has to be some type of medical structural problem wrong when often it's more complicated than that. Well, Peter, what do you guys think is the big problem with the medicalization of low back pain? Yeah, I think it, it people want to, like, uh, like Catherine said, people want an explanation and uh, clinicians want an explanation too, right? And you, yeah, uh, one term I really don't like is when people talk about the root cause. They go, oh, well, you see that on clinicians. I don't want to call anybody out, but like, and I, I'm sure I've used terms like that in the past and I've, I've changed my perspectives, but you see clinicians talking about that. Well, I find the root cause of back pain and I treat it, right? And our paper argues that it's not that simple. And many other, it's not just us, like many others argue this as well. And we, we build on their work and it's more complex than that. There's always many factors that shape perception. And I think people get a bit confused or they conflate low back injury and low back pain. So I think oftentimes we can... Uh, do these different types of examinations and uh, look at the history and and identify low back injury, but that doesn't just perfectly correlate uh, in a linear relationship with with pain, right? Um, it, it's not that simple. There's always many factors involved, and sometimes that is a, a mechanical component. So there is a nociceptive or neuropathic driver, but there's always other factors involved to shape perception as well. Um, Catherine, do you want to add on that? Uh, no, I don't actually. <laughs> Catherine, do you think there's a good format with which to kind of explore some of these other factors when we have that initial discussion with patients? So th- that's sort of where Peter and I are working towards right now. Um, you know, the so what after we laid out the theoretical paper and uh we have been teaching uh, in our own school uh, how, how to communicate <laughs> with our patients. Uh, this is a, a kind of a core piece, but what I've found recently, you know, kind of maybe a little bit of a aha moment, realizing that as you have already said, you know, you, you're driving towards the prize, which is get out there and practice and can diagnose and treat and discharge and you know, and that's sort of the mentality of of students who are in uh, in the school and in all of the schools. We want to get out and start practicing. So we, I've been shifting my attention actually towards creating more postgraduate type of courses where, because I'll often hear from you know new grads saying, oh, man, when you were talking about pain, I should have been listening, you know, um, because now I see it, right? And and I think it's only until people are, are really experiencing the, the difficulty of um, working with people with persistent pain that they realize the, the impact or the... Um, the value of thinking about the psychological interaction that's happening 
with the person. So we're starting to focus on that. We've got a, a kind of an outline for a course that we're uh, hoping to hoping to get pulled together. Um, and we would do that online as well as face-to-face uh, -face so that we could reach more people. But, you know, it really does. It comes down to communicating. It comes to, and we... We have also kind of, uh, you know, developed some ideas around the behavior change uh, approach. So you were talking earlier about how people have this script in their head, and there there are ways of helping people shift that script, right? So they have to talk to themselves. They have to change the channel in their own heads and and the way that they interact with uh, the challenges of their social environment and their cultural environment. We can't do it for them, right? So we're coaches, we're facilitators of change. And these these things come together in my mind uh, to work with people with persistent pain. So it's not, you know, it's not just sit and listen and nod your head and say, aha. You have to really connect with the person and find out, as you have said, you know, what is important to them. And then apply, <laughs> apply some very, you know, not, not too extraordinarily complex psychological techniques to help them find their way and uh, make their own progress. Because we can't exercise for our patients. We can't do it for them, right? They have to do it. And that's where that sort of psychological techniques really come into play. It's funny because on the inactive approach to pain, your five E's exercise amazingly is not one of the E's. <laughs> oh, we, we blew it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, maybe maybe you can think about inactive a little bit that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that could you guys kind of get in, into the inactive approach to pain and how your stance does build upon biopsychosocial and maybe introduce the five E's that you propose. Yeah, I, that, that's like a I guess a huge a huge question. Um, <laughs> maybe uh like i'll start by just giving like a, a a really kind of brief overview um so essentially it's building on the idea of 4e cognition so it's not us that that developed that so you look at people like sean gallagher a, a well a well-known philosopher he's been uh attributed to to that kind of 4e cognition movement as well as others like Evan Thompson, Alba Noe, um, more recently, like uh, like Andy Clark, bridging that with with predictive processing, and uh, essentially, th there's there's different threat like uh, approaches and different kind of strands of uh, different directions that people go. But what it argues is that it, cognition isn't just in the head. So we'd say the same thing. So pain isn't just in the head; it involves the body, obviously, with with a brain, and uh, and that's person with a body and a brain is situated in, a, in an environment. And so the unit of explanation for, for pain isn't just processing in the brain or the disc in the back. It's really the whole system of the brain-body environment and, and how they interact together. And looking at the relationships between these uh, different components and how they essentially interact to bring forth or enact cognition or or pain so that's kind of a a summary and I guess Catherine touched on this as well like when we did this work like it, we weren't aiming to kind of target clinicians so it, it does have a lot of theory and philosophical jargon and 
uh, when clinicians say, oh, I, I went through the paper and I'm like, oh, I can't believe you read the whole thing. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, like it's, I, I, we wanted that as just kind of a foundation to kind of build from there. But that's kind of just a general description of 4E cognition. And what we did is uh, added an additional E emotive. So the original four E's are embodied, embedded, inactive, extended, and uh, we added in a motive, and others have done that as well. So um, s- since we've kind of been been writing and working on this paper, so uh, we we could talk a bit about the the each of the E's if you, if you if you'd like. Yeah, certainly. Um, let's start with a motive, since that was the one added in, and how that kind of qualifies as being the new component yeah i think that was the easiest one right it it just made sense so you look at uh current definitions that are quite widely accepted uh iasp uh international association for the study of pain considers pain to be a a, a sensory but also an emotional experience and an activist view it emotion a little bit differently than maybe others so it gets really confusing when you look at the literature of how people define emotion and affect it can be quite confusing and contradictory but in general like what some activists are saying is that uh, essentially every perception is kind of emotionally driven and we're always directing ourselves to things that we care about or that are significant to us Uh, so we talked about meaning as well and incorporated that into uh, our, our pain experience and perception and how that intertwines with with emotion. So, I guess the 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 thing out of that would be it would is how do we get to in conversations with patients, either discussing or being aware of that component and teasing out the role it may play. Yeah, I think it's 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 always a part of every pain experience, right? It's uh, it's an unpleasant or distressing experience. So uh, we argue in the paper that there's always an emotional component. There's always a, a meaning or a, a threat associated with pain, whether that's conscious or or subconscious, right? And, and so, what what I for in terms of clinical practical application, it's like how can we change or shape the environment and uh, communicate with patients to essentially redirect their emotive experience. So to focus on things that uh, promote safety rather than danger. So if we talk about our words, if we're saying, oh, you have a back of an 80 year old, uh, you're moving wrong, like you're, you're, ba- you're gonna end up in a wheelchair by the time you're, you're 40, like, those things can be quite salient for for an individual and uh, create fear or potentially catastrophizing in some individuals. And what what we argue is we should really be considering the language and focusing on empowering patients and reflecting on the meaning assigned to our, our words that we're relaying to patients. We are going to take another brief break for some more information on our pain and rehab consultations. Do you have a new injury or pain that prevents you from training, leaves you unsure about what to do in the gym or how to recover? Or have you had some long-standing ache and pain that you've been pushing through, maybe trying to ignore, but hoping it goes away? 
In either case, we'd highly suggest learning more about pain and injury. And to that end, we offer consultations with Doctor of Physical Therapy Derek Miles and Doctor of Chiropractor Michael Ray, the barbell medicine pain and rehab experts. They offer one-time consults or a combination of an initial consultation plus rehab-focused programming and follow-up over time. As evidence-based experts in the field, they apply a comprehensive biopsychosocial approach to guide your path towards normal function and performance. Consults are for adults age 18 plus only. And now, without further ado, back to our podcast with Peter Stilwell and Katherine Harmon. I've always found it funny, you know, we talk about the language we use in patient communication, but even from the research side of things, when we start looking at our outcome measures, it's like the pain catastrophizing scale, the fear avoidance beliefs questionnaire. It's like you you put those words right at the top of the questionnaire and you're already kind of uh, setting your patients up for like, why am I catastrophizing? What is my fear right now? You almost uh, bring in the emotive side of it before they've even answered the first question on the page. Yeah, which is interesting because, yeah, we did a separate study looking at clinicians, chiropractors, uh, barriers and facilitators to screening and managing psychosocial factors. And clinicians said just that. They're like, well, some of these questionnaires, like, it's going to wreck my therapeutic relationship with the patient. Like, if I give them this this kinesiophobia questionnaire or pain catastrophizing questionnaire, like, they're going to go, oh, what do they think? Like, I'm faking it or um, it's all in my head. Like, and some people say that's a reason why they don't actually use those type of questionnaires that are actually advocated in clinical practice guidelines. Yeah, yeah and I, I, I think the movement towards the OSPRO or the Start Back tool has been good just from like a, it being a little bit more linguistically innocuous than the supercharged ones we were using five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you uh, very important points, and, and it's sort of a nice little segue to one of the other E's, which is embedded, because, uh, and I'll, I will let Peter, you know, do the more clear description of each. But w- what it is saying is that we're always experience our experiences are contextually connected to our environment, right? So there are primes, like you just talked about, the title of a questionnaire, the environment that we create, you know, in a clinic, um, you know, simply simple things we can shift towards more, uh, um, you know, uh, nurturing or supportive environment rather than really kind of clinically aseptic and uh, cold or whatever, you know, every little thing, if we just become more aware of the um, experience that this person is having, right, as uh, an individual embedded in the clinical situation or in their workplace or whatever, then we have a better way of connecting with them in a healing sense as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, with Embedded, we were actually talking yesterday in preparation for this podcast about the environments each of us work in from a clinical standpoint. And uh, like I own my own practice and the environment I've created is very much like what my hope is, is when you walk in, it realizes that it's going to be a location of facilitation where you have to do the work. It's very much a gym type atmosphere. I've been to Derek's clinic, which is also extremely similar I've not been to yours, the motto, but I feel as though, like, based on our discussions, also equally similar is 
a place where we do work for you to help yourself get through this process. And we're kind of just guiding it. Yeah. It's very similar in terms of like how it's like an open kind of gym environment. I think the other thing we talk about too at our clinic is kind of the social support and like communication aspect because it's like very much like a, it's less sterile, I would say, you know, people, patients are yeah. talking to each other, clinicians are talking to each other. So it's very much like that social support is present and it's not like a explicit thing we have to tell them. It's kind of just implicitly there. Sounds like you're paying attention. That's awesome. <laughs> Trying. <laughs> Try to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're just uh, laying out or uh, trying to enact the framework that you have laid for us. There you go. Uh, <laughs> I think you guys did, like, you hit on it nicely. And I think, yeah, different environments afford different actions, right? And, and that shapes our perception depending on the types of bodies we have, right? And, and that goes to the other E, uh, embodiment. Yeah, and I think it's all these, to your point, it's, you know, we originally had the Cartesian model, then it grew into the biopsychosocial model. Now it seems like it's evolving. It's like we're the opposite of eight-minute abs to where it's like initially, like it was, let's do it in 10 minutes, so we can do it in nine, we can do it in eight. And a lot of the clinical picture just seems to be like, well, it's more complicated than that. It's more granular than that. And each grain we can kind of frame the problem through gives us a better picture of the overall picture to be redundant. Yeah. And I think like, it's not, we're not saying like, oh, this is the thing, right? It's, it's just a, like, I see these things as like living documents, right? And discussion pieces and it'll shift and change. And it's just a, 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 a new lens, to look at pain a, a bit differently, right? And potentially has some, we suggest some clinical applications. So it'll, it'll get refined over time and uh, some people will pick it up, others won't. And that that's all uh, like I really wanted, right? Is just a new new way of looking at it, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and as you, as you know, the lens makes a massive difference in our interpretation of the quote unquote supposed problem or the patient that we're trying to help, the, the lens that we view them in makes a, a massive difference in our approach to clinical practice. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. I think the big thing think- for me with the, oh, sorry. Um, oh, good. Yeah, I think the big thing for me, or the big aha moment when I was um, exploring more of this literature was I, at least the way I interpreted it in an earlier part of my career was that the psychosocial factors kind of seem like an afterthought that affect the person's ability to manage the situation. And which is, that still holds true. Like they're going to, it's going to affect how they manage it. But I think what this gets at in better detail is that it, like all these factors of, um, you know, the environment and the, and the social interactions and the person's history and beliefs like actually shape their, what seems to be their objective reality. So their, their perception of their pain actually changes where I feel like the prior thought process was that the, the pain is objective and that they were just perceiving it wrong or that they're it's kind of putting the blame on the patient for, for interpreting it incorrectly when in fact like that their interpretation or their experience is their reality. And I think this is what gets at that. I don't know if I'm going too far on the limb with that, but it's kind of this weird meta uh, a way of approaching like perception and reality and that the person, whatever they're experiencing is their experience. I, I love that. Right. And and that's, I do too. Yeah. That's yeah. what we're hitting on. Right. It's not just the 
psychosocial repercussions of pain, but it is fundamentally constitutes pain and like these, these different factors essentially act as scaffolding for the pain experience, the the etiology of pain. Right. So I, I, I think you did a night, really nice summary of that. Sometimes, sometimes I just want to throw in, (laughs) uh, can I throw in a, a wrench, I guess, in a sense that in, in what I think we're going to, like your, all your questions are really helpful for us to reflect on how to move this thing forward. Um, I think th- th- what you said, Mike, is just spot on. And what I expect we're going to hear from others is, but, you know, we've been pushing for evidence-based practice, right? We have to find the physical cause for these things. And if we start saying that the perception is actually changed by by the contextual experience of the person how do we prove that right how do we how do we actually demonstrate that and i think you know those are the sorts of things we're going to bump into um and 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 if you think about the biopsychosocial model i think that's what engel wanted to say that the person is in this environment and that influences how they experience the world, right? But he, he didn't have a philosophy, a phenomenologic background. So we're just moving the conversation forward. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can speak from my perspective, but it's definitely challenging to have these conversations with uh, others in the field um, because you can get defensive about it for sure. Yeah, this is, yeah, philosophical banter isn't the go-to for most clinicians, right? (laughs) Well, but I think, you know, one of the big crux of the whole evidence-based medicine is a philosophical question of, like, how do we question our own beliefs? And, you know, I think even that you can extrapolate out to the patient of, like, they obviously have priors coming in on what they believe is going on. And, you know, I think this will pull us into the enacted E out of it. The meaning is created by the organism for the organism. And all of these priors and all of our training and all of the interactions with our social environment and our, our dispositions and prior readings really do create the sum of that emergent process out of it. And I think to your point, Peter, a lot of clinicians just haven't been exposed to more of the like the existential crisis that comes with reading a lot of philosophy and having those types of discussions. <laughs> yeah. I, I, somebody commented on the paper. I, I'm paraphrasing, but they're like, Oh, I went to learn some tips on like how to better clinical practice. And I left with like an existential crisis. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I, I think that's a good thing getting people to reflect. And like, I'm learning as I go to right? it's, it's, it's a, it's a struggle. And, putting in the time and uh, yeah, it's, it's not, not always pleasant, right. To reflect on things and update our, our, our approaches. I think that's Welcome something to grad school. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think that's something we regularly try to, to do with clinicians when we're having these conversations with them is get them comfortable in the uncertainty of things and that we are all collectively trying to grow through this process and learn more to have the betterment of healthcare and our patients. So it's just, getting comfortable in that process. Mm-hmm. So, so the other thing I, I had kind of wanted to mention is the, the philosophy side of things. 
we we've kind of got to philosophy for for a couple of reasons. One was to have a, another way of thinking about pain, as we've been discussing, um, and phenomenology is a is a method of examining things too. So we've we've been using it to understand, but we're uh, you know to discuss and and get conceptually you know more flexible with the concept, and we're using it in our research so as a method and as as an interpretation and this is uh, you know very pragmatic in fact uh, which i don't know catered to our, our practical side um because really again let's circle back to this whole language thing if we can if we can better understand how two people one healthcare provider one patient or cl- client are can grapple with one person's problem, right? This, like, uh, the experience of another, the healthcare provider is trying to find their way into it and help them, then we can do a better job at enhancing our practice, right? And it's really about getting in into their space enough to, to feel or understand what it is that they're going through. So phenomenology is very helpful for that as well. So out of this, I guess we're kind of working our way through the ease, as it were. Um, I, I guess we can transition into the extended side of things there, um, especially, I guess, when we're talking about this interaction with the environment out of it. So, um, Peter, could you get into the extended E? Yeah, I think I think to get to the extended, like I can give a, a quick overview of uh, – the two like embodied and, and inactive because they kind of they build on each other right and in really kind of st- simple terms embodiment uh, defined differently by by many different people but essentially gets at how uh, cognition is shaped by our body um, and our body body actions and our capacity to act and we give examples of of different type of studies in in our papers so for example, studies where people hold their arms out to their side, they actually gauge doorways to actually be narrower. Uh, or if you wear a heavy backpack, hills are actually gauged to be be steeper, um, which is really interesting. And it, it's believed to come down to our, our agency or our capacity to act. So if you think about it, if your arms are out to the side, it makes it more difficult to actually get through a, a, a doorway. Um, so you actually perceive it as being narrower, which is really, really interesting. So we're starting to explore that in the context of, of pain. So how the body essentially shapes the mind or, or cognition. And then the inactive, that's really deep theoretical underpinnings, but it, 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 as kind of like a brief explanation, really it looks at how we are action-oriented and we perceive the environment based on what action it affords us. Um, and the way we kind of move depends on what we sense and what we sense depends on what, how we move. So it really looks at these kind of action perception cycles and that the dynamics between the brain body and environment. And, and then I, I think the most radical out of all the, the ease is extended. And that looks at how, yes, our, our body shapes the mind, but starts to look at things outside of the body. So builds on the work of, of Clark and, and Chalmers. And what they did is really challenge the idea uh, that the boundary of the mind is, is just the skull, right? And they look at how 
other types of non-biological entities, um, uh, other types of uh, things shape the experience uh, or shape our cognition. And so we take it even one step further with, with pain and consider how culture acts as scaffolding for the experience of pain and uh, as well as these non-biological entities. So whether that be a, a, an assistive device, a cane, a wheelchair, how those shape our experience of the world. No, I, I think even for that, it, it's probably more socially acceptable these days to really think about the extended just because we've had such a movement um, towards the use of even our smart devices. So I think it's easier conceptually to grasp now because we don't consider the body of knowledge just to be what's stored in our heads. It's what's at our fingertips through our phone. So that interaction with the environment seems to be a little bit more on people's radar now, just the knowledge possessed between our ears. 100%. And that's something that Catherine and I have talked about and others as well. Like, Because when, when these people started talking about these things, iPhones weren't a thing, right? So they talk about the famous example is of Otto, a person with uh, Alzheimer's, and they talk about how essentially a notepad can act as a source of memory and help a person with Alzheimer's navigate their environment in, in meaningful ways. But we are coupled to our our cell phones now and uh, really it does shape our our experiences and can be considered a a part of the mind or a part of the processes right so i think people talk about these it doesn't have to just be brain bound right cognition uh, we shouldn't be these kind of i think andy clark uses the term bio chauvinists Uh, (laughs) we have to we should look at other factors as well other things outside of the, the skull well, even the simple example of what you use, like the wheelchair or the cane, like how many times do you hear like a patient saying like, oh, I brought my cane to the mall or to the stadium just as a way of like reminding others that like, you know, I'm rehabbing or dealing with something. So like pretty much get out of my way and like, uh, you know, like be, be precautious around me. And that's like an extended way of saying like, hey, I'm in pain or hey, I'm, I'm dealing with this injury. Mm-hmm. In particular, because pain is such an invisible problem, right? Yes, that's really challenging. Um, it's, it's, it's part of a, almost like I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of correlates, but not that we have to get that deep into it. But it's like mental illness is the same has the same kind of stigma where you can't see it, um, and so the public opinion or public uh, perception of it is like greatly. Uh, changed by that yeah and it goes back to your what you discussed earlier like people want to be validated right and if it's invisible like how can we communicate that to others it's it's a challenge i'm sure you you've heard it many times where people go i wish i just had a broken arm or a cast like it would be so much easier to get understanding right Um, people need validation and and need their stories listened to because when you look at the literature that doesn't happen as as much as we'd like Um, it's interesting that you use that example because I end up having conversations with a lot of my post-operative patients, especially the arthroscopic ones about the fact that they can't see what was done inside because to them, they're actually starting to feel good and wanting to do more than they likely should according to a surgical protocol, because to them, all they see are the two little incisions on the front of their knee. uh, So yeah, it kind of goes both ways on that, but I do think, is then I normally use the analogy of like, well, if you cut yourself with a knife at four weeks, you would still have 
a, some type of scab on that that you just can't see it because it's inside you. So I think it does. The analogy goes both ways on that. Yeah, hundred percent. And like I know a lot of our work talks about like fear and catastrophizing, and, and don't get me wrong, like that's only a subset of of the of the population experiencing pain, right? And other other people are, are like are quite resilient or, or pushing things, uh, maybe more than they actually should, right? And uh, pacing in, in situations like that can be can be important rather than trying to get them to do more, right? And I think you you talked about that in your your. I, I laughed when you mentioned that in your last podcast where you're like the person comes in and they've just been doing all this labor and exercise and then the therapist tells them they need to do more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> doesn't really build the therapeutic alliance. I don't think that well. Yeah. It's, it's where I think, and I actually texted Amato and Ray this yesterday. I, I think there is a certain beauty in your analogy of scaffolding too, because sometimes we need to, be building up an experience and stuff. So we need to be taking down that scaffolding. And, and it's really is like, where do we need to construct versus deconstruct beliefs and actions? Yeah. Easier said than done. Uh, for, for, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think much of this gets at uh, the phrase we've been using a lot, which is therapeutic alliance, which in essence is just, building relationships with our patients, which takes time and effort and active listening and, and, you know, paying attention to the things that they need from us, as Amato was discussing earlier. Um, do you guys have tips on how to help clinicians build therapeutic alliance? Because it does seem like it's a major crux of this discussion. Catherine, I'll leave this one to you. Like, uh, C- Catherine's really, like, uh, got me on, like, into the, the world of, uh, the literature on the therapeutic alliance and, and building those connections and really helped shift my thinking. Um, so maybe I'll leave, leave this one to you. Thank you. It, it isn't, uh, there's no simple answer uh, right away, I have to say that, Michael. Um, and I suspect we've covered most of it, even in the different ways we've been talking about it today. Um, I, I guess what I struggle with is, uh, and it maybe it goes back to the medicalization of pain, is that we've our, our clinical delivery system has evolved such that people are, you know, kind of more viewed as commodities and, uh, you know, money coming into a clinic or whatever, and the more people come through, the better. Um, and it, it makes it very challenging in a busy clinical environment. We have the gym like you described and so on, and there's lots going on. It really makes it difficult to see people in their eyes and really kind of connect, right? So one of the things that I've been pushing to do, and it's particularly challenging research to do, is to capture what happens in the first encounter um, because typically, at least what I've observed, is that the first encounter is usually the time when you actually are listening to the patient, trying to find out what this issue is and so on. And then subsequently, the contacts are quite short um, and often with other people involved, maybe in the busy gym, and that's it. So if you haven't made a strong connection in that first encounter, it's pretty tricky to make it later because the environment isn't really facilitatory to that. So 
And, you know, I think use intention, like really ask yourself, am I trying to connect or am I just here to get the five words I need so I can go ahead and do an intervention, right? And and ask yourself, am I connecting? Like, I, again, we, we have these um, recordings of just a sample, so it's not, you know, everybody for sure, um, listening to what happens between two people, a healthcare provider and a patient. And in most cases, not all, the clinician is talking way more than the, than the patient. Uh, they're, they're providing advice that's not even solicited. They are uh, telling the patient what they think the patient needs to know, right? But if we flip it and say, this is what I try to get my students to think about, listen more than talk. Like, that is a very difficult thing to do for a clinician who wants to fix people. But if you listen more than you talk, then all of a sudden, their connection starts to happen, right? So tips, <laughs> do it intentionally. Get in a space where it's just the two of you, right? Get at the same level. Do the active listening stuff, which you already know about, you know, face-to-face, eye-to-eye. See, challenge yourself. Maybe even record it once in a while and see if you're listening as much as you're talking. And, and uh, you know, one of the tics, or tri- tips that uh, Peter told me about that he's tried often is, is at the end of some period, ask the patient, you know, what was it that I told you about? What was the piece of advice? Or what was the diagnosis? Like it gets them to play back some of the key things that you think are important for them to learn and see if they even understood what you were saying, you know. And that gives them the sense that it matters to you what their position is or what their experience is and so on. And I'll just one more, and this is the other that I often teach students about, is that in that active listening, you know, you, you'll say, oh, from what you said, I hear you, this is what you said, right? Well, I, I think it's a wonderful tool because if you get it right, then the patient knows you were listening. If you get it wrong, then the patient has a chance to say what it was that they really wanted to say to you. And you get it right the next time. And they know that you asked and you were curious and you wanted to understand this particular thing very, very clearly, right? So getting it right or getting it wrong doesn't really matter. It, it helps enhance the connection that happens between those two people. No, that's perfect. Um, it's like very much a practice that you get better at with some some focus but also like experience and repeated dialogue and repeated stories and I think it's a hard thing for newer graduates and young clinicians to kind of um grasp out of the gate yeah Yeah, I think a lot of it is uh just slowing slowing yourself down as a clinician and taking time uh from the sounds of it I think one of the biggest things I've done in the last like year or two years is I uh stopped using my computer and a notepad for initial evaluations. So I have like no distraction or I'm not hiding behind anything. I'm not like typing and trying to record a transcript, but I'm trying to like, like what Catherine was getting at kind of like that intentional active conversation. That's interesting. Cause nice. we, we talk about that in our lectures as well, right? Like not just 
listening and uh, the way we communicate with with individuals, but also the physical setup. Like, are you are you facing them? Are you facing a computer? Like, what's your body language? Are you open? Are you closed? And I joke, I'm like, here's what, here's some of the evidence, but like pick and choose your battles, right? Like sometimes your environment, you can't really modify it. Or I I joke, I'm like, I'm always laid back and like have my legs crossed. And that's just the way, the way I am. And like, that's how I always was with clinical appointments. And I'm like, I'm probably harming the the therapeutic alliance there, but I try to balance it out and redeem myself in other ways. So you, you pick and choose, right? Yeah, it's about being authentic, right? Like that's yeah. if that's who you are. You can you can play to that. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to say that I have another appointment in about ten minutes. Is that all right to step out and let you wrap it up, Peter? Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for your time, Catherine. It was very much appreciated, and and it was a pleasure to talk with you today. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you for the invitation and I'll, uh, I'll hear from Peter how it ended. All right. Thank you, Catherine. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye. All right. So, so Peter, just to kind of, I guess, bring us home, what would be kind of the future side of things that you're looking into as far as what you hope will come from the current research and, projects once you have finished your uh, PhD, how are you planning to change the world? (laughs) Yeah, I have no intentions of that. Making, trying to make small, trying to make small little dents. Right. And, uh, like I always think of it things like, because I have a clinical background, like uh, the research always has this kind of pragmatic lens, uh, to it with the exception of this theoretical paper that we've been discussing, which is, uh, not as I, I think clinically friendly, but uh, the goal is essentially refine it and have have more of these discussions and look at how it can potentially shape clinical practice. Um, key kind of points would be uh, how it may shape how we explain uh, pain to people. Um, so in the paper, we talk about how uh, an inactive approach, we're not just blaming a disc or saying that pain is ultimately an output of the brain, we're taking a a more broader approach. And uh, now we're exploring how you can essentially use this framework for different types of interventions as well. So that would be a goal to start to tease that out. Um, I have interest in predictive processing uh, from a kind of a theoretical standpoint. And we, we touch on that a bit in the paper. And I have interest in looking at better merging that with this kind of 5e or an active approach uh, to pain. So that's kind of the, the plan as I move forward here. Future collaboration with Andy Clark on the horizon. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. You, you, you never know. You never know. I, I, I wish. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I value him. Uh, great, great work. And, if anybody uh, wants to get into some of his literature, like I, I highly suggest it, and you just have to be patient. Um, some of it's a, a bit tricky and uh, challenging. Yeah, I, I know yeah. Derek and I read it last summer, and that was definitely like a, a turning point for me in exploring a lot of the stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think Amano and I both got into Andy Clark, and then uh, George Northoff's uh, "The Spontaneous Brain" for the the mind, body, and world brain problems. So like 
the world brain talks a lot about, in fact, the, the diagram that you guys have in the current paper is pretty similar to some of the premise of the book and that like, it's hard for us to really exist without the environment. And it really does shape who we are. And that, that book gave me like a solid three month headache, but I think I'm probably a better person for having read it. But, you know, to the point of, to bring it back to where we started without the social constructs, the, the bio and psycho are really like not as integral. I'm sure it's the whole, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's around, does it make a sound? You know, if you stub your toe and nobody's in the house, do you still do the same type of dance that you would if your significant other was there? And it's, (laughs) so there, there certainly is that social construct of it all. And, you know, especially for the barbell medicine cohort where a lot of us are barbell athletes, it's the social construct is going to the gym and interacting with the same people every time. And they kind of become this proto family of uh, fellow lifters. And if you have something that detracts away from you spending time with that family, it tends to be a huge limiting factor for your overall progress and training and like even your identity as a person. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's always, I think we have a tendency to want to like clinically simplify things. And in this paper, I think we did the opposite. It's like trying to appreciate how complex things are and how there's many factors, right? And I think that's what you just touched on, right? Um, yeah. Some that are just less obvious uh, sometimes and using a different framework can point us to some of those, those things that uh, we haven't really considered before. I apologize here. Somebody's like drilling in the, the <laughs> there's like some construction that suddenly emerged. Uh, so there's like drills and uh, saws and all types of things. So sorry for the background noise. that's suddenly started up here. Oh, you're good. I don't think, I don't think we hear it. No, yeah. I don't have any of that. Awesome. Well, well Mike, uh, do you guys have any other questions for Peter? At this time? No, I think uh, no. Uh, Yeah. No, I think uh, I think you did an excellent job. Uh, you and Catherine both kind of summarizing summarizing your work, and uh, I really I know I personally look forward to some of the uh, studies that you guys mentioned today that are in the works. Um, so I look forward to seeing that, especially that uh, qualitative analysis one, interviewing clinicians and patients about the discussion of pain. So I'm excited to see that in the future. Awesome, yeah, it's a labor of love. So chip chipping away at it. So. Um... Yeah, and thanks thanks for the invite. I really appreciate it and enjoyed talking with you guys today. And you, you do really important work, right? It's uh, connecting with clinicians and, and pushing different ideas forward and challenging yourselves, which is not the easy path, right? It's, it's, it's difficult and challenging and takes time and effort. So um, really appreciate the type of work that you guys do. Oh, yeah, thank you, Peter. And um at least personally, I'm looking forward to like continuing these conversations in the future and seeing what comes out of all this, all this. Yeah. 100%. If, if you ever are interested, uh, we all equally like philosophical banter. So if you're ever like, Hey, let's just, you know, get out and talk. We'd be happy to do it. Sounds great. I'm on board. (laughs) Thank you, Peter. And that will wrap up this podcast for episode four with Peter Stilwell and Catherine Harmon. Mm -hmm.